0: that can only be found in Christ for those victims. We do pray for truth to come out and for abusers to be held accountable. We pray through it all, your gospel would go forth clearly. Father, we pray as well today for those we will be remembering tomorrow all of their families and loved ones, of those who gave their lives in service to our country. And Lord, as we have enjoyed worship this morning, we pray we'd continue to worship our Savior as we look to your word. I pray for your anointing to preach it clearly, boldly. Forgive my own sins shortcomings, and Lord, let your truth be clear and apply it to each of our hearts and lives for your glory. And Father, we we pray all of these things in Christ's name, amen. Boarding the SS Dorchester on a dreary winter day in 1943, were 903 troops and four chaplains, including Moody Bible Institute alumnus Lieutenant George Fox. World War II was in full swing. The ship was headed across the icy North Atlantic where German U-boats lurked. At 12 a.m. the morning of February 3rd, a German torpedo ripped into the ship. She's going down, the men cried, scrambling, For the lifeboats. A young GI crept up to one of the chaplains. I've lost my life jacket, he said. Take this, the chaplain said, handing the soldier his. Before the ship sank, each chaplain gave his life jacket to another man. The heroic chaplains then linked arms and lifted their voices in prayer as the Dorchester went down. Lieutenant Fox and his fellow pastors were awarded posthumously the Distinguished Service. Cross. Love. God's kind of love, selfless, sacrificial, unconditional. Sometimes we see it in life and death moments, like with those four chaplains, sacrificing to save others. Other times, it's just in the day to day. Or it should be in the day-to-day. This past January, Pastor Scott challenged us to love without limits, from 1 John chapter four. Let me, let me read that passage to remind ourselves. He focused on verses 11 to 13, but let me begin at verse seven. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. I encourage you to to go on our website and find sermons and find those two sermons, a two-part sermon, back in January, and listen to those again. Or if you haven't heard them yet, go back and listen to those. And recently he reminded us of this challenge, and he did that reminder right as I was praying about what do I preach when I'm filling in for today. And I'd like us to focus on God's call for us to love from another passage, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2. At the risk of sounding repetitive, although going back and looking at those sermons, I apologize. I don't come anywhere near what Pastor Scott did in proclaiming those truths back in January. But But I know I need reminders along the way and convictions and encouragements. And so I thought we should go there. And I hope you'll find benefit to it as well. And we'll look at what God tells us here in this verse in Ephesians 5 in four parts. God's precept, our problem, God's provision, and our practice. So let me read again just that one verse from what Pastor Rick read earlier. And walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So first, God's precepts. God commands us to walk in love. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. It's very clear. We're to walk in love. And it begins, the verse begins with a conjunction and, so it connects it back to verse one, with be imitators of God. Parallel statements that further explain one the other. So how do we imitate God? By walking in love as Christ loved us. And this, these two verses are at the end of a, of a paragraph, what I believe is a paragraph of this letter here in Ephesians, that begins at... ...verse 17 of chapter 4 and runs through here verse 2 of chapter 5. And this command to love is the encompassing command for the whole whole paragraph. And as you look through scripture, it's actually an encompassing command overall. We don't have time to look at, at, at all places, but just to mention a couple. In John 13, 34, Jesus says, "...a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another." Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. In Mark chapter 12, when asked the greatest commandment, he says it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And as a second, like it, love your neighbor as yourself. The word walk here in Ephesians 5, 2, the idea is the walk of life. As we live our life, as we walk through life, the way we're to do so is in love. And it's either the idea of the manner of our walk should be in love, or maybe it's the sphere in which we walk is this love of of Christ. Either way, the point is the same. It's not that we're to, as we're walking through life, add one more thing that we do, love. It's that in everything we do walking through life, we're to love like Christ loves. It's an, it's an encompassing command, a love like Christ. And how does Christ love? It's, many of you have heard the, the Greek word agape, or the verb ag- agapao. It's, it's a word, basically, by the New Testament writers put, put meaning into that word that described God's kind of love, Christ's kind of love that's unconditional, that's selfless, that's sacrificial, that's unmerited, that seeks the the best for the beloved, even at great cost and sacrifice. In 1 Corinthians 13, for time's sake we won't go there, but many of you are familiar with verses 4 to the beginning of verse 8 that describes love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast. It goes through this beautiful description of this kind of love, Christ's kind of love. But what I do want you to take time to do, though, for a moment is just to imagine what if every one of us loved like Christ always, consistently, fully. Those of you married, what what would that do to our marriages They'd become perfect, so joyful and fulfilling, and this amazing picture of Christ and the church and the gospel shining out through through our marriages. What would our parenting become like? Suddenly we'd be that perfect parent, perfectly loving and kind and firm and teaching and training just perfectly. And what's amazing is our children wouldn't need much training because they would be doing the same thing. They would be loving us with this Christ-like, perfect love. You get, you get the idea. What about our friendships? What about our church? Our relationships within the church? We'd reconcile with everybody. We'd be at peace with one another. We'd be in perfect unity. We'd be working together for the cause of Christ. We'd put, we'd put aside any old things forgive, and forgive them. And uh, everything would be perfect Loving without limits, as Pastor Scott has challenged us. And it would bleed over, right? It would, it would head out into society. What, if, if our whole community started doing that. There have been times and moments in history where there's been glimpses of this. Like in the Great Awakening where God would sweep through a town and so many people got saved and were being transformed that crime stopped. The police didn't have anything to do. Those kind of situations. There were no partiality, no, you know, sinful partiality or prejudice or unkindness or just imagine if we loved like Christ loves. It'd be awesome. So go and do it. I will go early. Just go and do it. We laugh, right? We, we chuckle at that because we don't love that way, do we? Now, many of you do partially by the grace of God. God has saved so many in this room, and, and he's working on us, and he's sanctifying us, and some of that love of Christ is happening, and we, we can see that here. We're very blessed in our congregation with seeing some of that love of Christ, but we fall short, and we know we fall short. And we know it's not as simple as just go do it. Or we'd be doing it. So that leads to our second point, our problem. Why? Why do we struggle to obey this command? Why do unbelievers have no ability to obey this command? Now, unbelievers can have great, some great horizontal love. But they don't have Christ's love. They can't without him. Just like we can't without him. But even those of us saved, we still struggle. Why do we still struggle? Because of sin. Because we're sinners. Here in, in verse 2 of chapter 5, it's, this, is, this point is not explicitly stated, but it's here. Where it says, and Christ gave himself up for us, an offering and sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Why did he do that? Because of our sin. Because of his love, but just his love isn't enough. His love cannot just overlook our sin because that would violate his justice and his wrath and his holiness. So he had to give himself up, and we'll look more at that later, but, it, but implied there is our problem, our sin. And then the context makes it very clear. If you go back a couple chapters, three chapters, chapter two, and you were dead in your sins and your trespasses. Verse 3, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Sin is our problem. And we need to understand it. We need to appreciate it. Even once saved, chapter 4, we're, we're told put off our old self. Be renewed in the spirit of our mind and put on the new self. Why? Because our old self sinful. And we still struggle with it. Galatians puts it as the deeds of the flesh. So we're in this battle as believers with our own flesh, our own sin. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, but it's love that includes all those other parts of the fruit of the Spirit. That's, it's, it's the Spirit's work in us. It's based on what Christ has done in his love that battles back against our sin. Our sin's the problem. Christ gave himself up out of love. And we need to look at this to appreciate what he's done and how we can love like Christ loves. So what is our sin? Well, it starts with Adam. It started with Adam's sin. When he ate of that fruit... World of yeses. God had made this beautiful world and this beautiful garden and put Adam in it and everything is yes except one no. Don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God gave the command there in chapter 2. Chapter 3, the serpent comes along. From later revelation, we know it's Satan in the serpent. Tempting Eve. Adam's right there with her. Let's it all happen. She eats. She gives to him. He eats. And the human race had fallen, fallen into sin. The results were not good, as you read on in, in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve became spiritually dead immediately. That's stated clearly in what we just quoted from Ephesians 2, dead in our sins and our trespasses. But there's evidence there in chapter 3, suddenly there's guilt and shame. Suddenly they're trying to cover themselves. Suddenly they're trying to hide from God. Sin had brought spiritual separation, that spiritual death between them and God. And we see it in their trying to blame. Rather than take responsibility, they try to blame Others, even Adam trying to blame God himself. Well, in addition to spiritual death, we see physical death. God said, you will die. And they began to die. Now, in God's long-suffering, it took 900-plus years. But it started. As you read through Genesis and you go through those genealogies, they all end with, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Sin brings physical death as well. That's why we die physically, which is still that idea of separation, body from our soul, our spirit. And then there's eternal death. The suffering of God's wrath forever in hell. And Adam and Eve were condemned to that then, and all of us in Adam were condemned to that then. We start out life condemned to eternal wrath in hell, physically dying and spiritually dead, separated from God. And there's only one hope for us Christ. It's the only hope Adam and Eve had, and God hinted at it by clothing them with animal skin, shedding those animals' blood. It's the only hope we have. Through the seed of the woman. In chapter 3 of Genesis verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. If you keep reading through the Bible, that's referring to Christ, the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent, but first was bruised on the cross, gave his life. Romans chapter 5 gives much greater clarity on how we all became sinners in Adam's fall. It describes how Adam is our our head. He's the head of the human race. Side note, we are one race. There's one human race. There's different ethnicities. In In God's sovereign plan and design, as we spread out and fill the earth, we have different shades of skin and eye colors and hair types and all of those things, but we're one human race, all descended of Adam and should live accordingly equally with the dignity of creation in God's image, equally fallen in sin, equally able to come by God's sovereign grace to Christ and salvation. And there will be some from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation in heaven one day. He's the head of our race. Naturally so, we're all descendants of his, but also federally so, representatively so, as our head. That's what's emphasized there in Romans 5. And when he first sinned, he sinned as our head, our representative. Therefore, the guilt of his original sin is imputed to us as our sin as well. When Adam, as our representative, sinned, we sinned. There's only one exception to that. And it's the one man who didn't have an earthly father, Jesus. Jesus is fully God, the Son. But he became a man, fully a man, but only the seed of the woman. He didn't have an earthly father. He didn't inherit that sin nature. He was the one sinless man. But that's the only exception. There are no other exceptions. We all start out spiritually dead, not just affected by sin, but thoroughly corrupted in our entire being by sin. Not utterly sinful. We could be worse. God restrains sin, but completely unable spiritually because of it. Now, many will object. That's not fair. I wasn't there. How, How can Adam choosing to eat of that fruit make me a sinner condemned to hell? And the answer is, God, our creator, our maker, the sovereign ruler of this universe, chose to make it so. He arranged things that way, and we have no right to object. But we should go a step further from Romans 5. Not only should we not object, we should thank God that Adam represented us as the head of our race. Because God set up a representative system so that the second Adam, Jesus Christ, as our head, can save us from our sin and the damnation of eternal wrath for it. So we should praise God, not object, not say that's not fair. We should God, say, God, thank you, because if it was up to each one of us individually, the Bible pretty clear. We would make the same mistake, but then there would be no hope. We'd be like like the fallen angels who have no way of redemption. No way to be right with God again. Sealed in their condemnation. Praise God that Adam represented us because Christ can also represent us. And we can be saved. Now how sinful are we? Totally. Like I mentioned, not utterly, but totally totally with complete inability spiritually. To appreciate what Christ did for us, we have to understand this point. Christ isn't a nice way to get to God. That's great. He's the only way. We don't have the ability to get ourselves to God. And and most people don't think this way. Turn, as, turn to Romans chapter 3. To, to drive this, Paul drives it home so well in Romans 3. But our society today thinks man is basically good. Most churches today think man is basically good. And that's a lie from hell. Because if we think we're basically good, we don't think we need Jesus. We may like Jesus... We may go to church and sing about Jesus and talk about Jesus. But it's not the Jesus of the Bible. And it's not an absolute desperation, repenting of our sin and trusting him alone to save us. Which is our only hope. And so we need to understand we are totally sinful. Verses 9 through 20 here in, in Romans 3. Shows that we are sinful in our character. Verse 9 through 11. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Can he be any clearer? There are no exceptions to this. Verse 12, our behavior is sinful. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. Verses 13 and 14, our talk is sinful. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Verses 15 to 17, our lifestyle is sinful. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. and the path of peace they have not known. Therefore, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Our motive is sinful. No fear of God. We should fear God. He's holy. He's our maker. He's our judge. We will face him one day. We should fear God. Now, thank God in Christ, we can then love God. He becomes, when we come to Christ, he becomes our father. But it starts with him as our creator, and we should fear God. So the evidence of God's word is in our character, our behavior, our talk, our lifestyle, our motive. We are depraved sinners. And the final verdict in verses 19 and 20, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. We are sinners, totally sinful. No hope in ourselves whatsoever. In our statement of faith here at Riverbend. It says, We believe and teach that Adam was a real man and historical figure whose one act of disobedience to the revealed word of God resulted in the imputation of sin to the entire human race. Through Adam, the forebear and representative of all humankind, people lost their innocence, incurred the penalty of spiritual and physical death, became subject to the wrath of God, and became inherently corrupt and utterly incapable of choosing or doing that which is acceptable to God apart from divine grace. Humanity's depravity is total, extending even to the will as free moral agents, leaving them in bondage to sin and causing them to always choose darkness and resulting in their inability to choose Christ. With no recuperative powers to enable them to recover themselves, each person is hopelessly lost. We believe and teach that because in Adam every person of all ages possesses a sin nature, Jesus Christ being the only exception, each person's salvation is thereby holy of God's grace through the redemptive work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Which leads to our third point. God's provision. How has Christ loved us and provided the way of forgiveness and victory over sin? God lovingly provides through the sacrificial atonement of Christ. We see that there in those phrases back in Ephesians 5.2. Christ gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. After the command to walk in love here in verse 2, the rest of the verse describes that kind of love. And the description is a description of this sacrificial atonement of Christ. And so it becomes the example of how to love And even more importantly, the basis on which we can love like Christ. We can be forgiven and made right with him where we can have that kind of love as he has loved us. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones points out that the Apostle Paul, here in the practical application part of his letter, brings in this rich, deep doctrinal statement. This fact is another significant reminder that doctrine and application, theology and how we live, should always go together. If, if we go, if we err one way or the other, we're messing things up. If we say, no, it's just the practical, it's just all about practical application. If we don't have the deep theology with it, it won't remain the right application and it'll have no depth to it. And if we have deep theology, but don't practically apply it and live it out, it's messed up. And maybe some form of just intellectual pride or, or something that's not actual. we don't actually understand the theology we think we know if it's not getting lived out in our lives. The two should always go together. Pastor Scott brought that out in the sermons in, G- in January. Lloyd-Jones points out, our conduct is always determined by our doctrine. That's not a call to action. That's a reality. What we believe is going to show in what we do and say and think. It does go together. So Paul here in verse 2 clarifies the command to walk in love with the rest of the verse. Christ's atoning work. He gave himself up for us. Notice notice in that statement, Christ is the subject of. Of a verb of action. Christ in going to the cross, Christ in his saving work was not a victim. He was not passive. He wasn't just allowing things to happen to him. He gave himself up. In fact, the himself is added for emphasis. He he took the action to obey the Father with their eternal plan of redemption. To carry it out and to offer himself up. And it says, "For us." The idea is in behalf of, for the sake of. It fits with this reality of, of him as our substitute in his atoning work. Do we, do we appreciate? Do we appreciate the weight, the wonder? of what Christ did in giving himself up for us. Sometimes we we can hear the gospel so often that we can let ourselves kind of get calloused to it. We should never get over it. We should always be in wonder and awe at what Christ has done for us. And his giving himself up included becoming a man. Giving up the glories of heaven to humble himself to become a man include going all the way in obedience to death, as Philippians 2 describes. The nouns here in, in Ephesians 5:2: offering, sacrifice, they're in opposition to himself. Christ is the offering. He is the sacrifice. He's not only giving it, he is that sacrifice to the Father, to God. And the two Greek words appear together in the Old Testament Greek translation. There's an ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament. And we see this phraseology through there. And then we see it through the New Testament. And taken together, uh, Harold Honer points out that together these words convey that Christ handed himself over as the offering and sacrifice that would fulfill all the offerings and sacrifices God had given in the Old Testament as pictures to point to the sacrifice and offering of Jesus himself. They all point to Christ. He's the actual atonement for sin for God's people. Hebrews seven twenty seven, speaking of Christ, says, He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And so on, all through the book of Hebrews brings this out over and over again. So imagine back in, in God's preview of what Christ would come and do. Imagine you're one of God's people, Old Testament times. You want to you be right with God and you want to come and worship him. And you'd have to come with an animal sacrifice for each sin. You'd place your hand on the animal, identify with it that it might be the substitute for you. The priest would kill the animal. The sacrifice for sin would only be done for accidental sins, mistakes. Willful rebellion wasn't covered in this. The only hope for that would be the once a year day of atonement described in Leviticus 16. Lloyd-Jones describes this day. He says, under the old dispensation, an animal was taken, and it had to be a perfect animal, free from every blemish, The high priest, representing the people, put his hands upon the head of the animal, thereby symbolically transferring the sins of the people to it. The animal was then slain. Its life was taken. Its blood poured out and collected in a bowl. The animal was slain because it now received the punishment due to the guilt of the sins of the people, whose sins had been transferred to it. Next, the high priest took the blood and presented it to God in the innermost sanctuary of the temple. There before the ark, he sprinkled it on the ark and before the ark then the body of the animal was placed upon the altar in the temple's outer court where it was burned and the smell ascended up into the presence of God. That is what is meant by the term sacrifice. And the apostle is here telling us that that is what was happening when the Lord Jesus Christ died upon the cross on Calvary's hill when his body was broken and his blood was shed, an offering and a sacrifice to God. Those animal sacrifices never took anyone's sins away. But a believer in those days trusting what God had given as a picture pointing to when their sins actually would be atoned for, were saved by God's grace through faith based on the atonement of Christ. That's how God honored those Old Testament sacrifices, is Christ would come one day and fulfill all of it. Christ giving himself as an offering and sacrifice to God the Father pleased and satisfied the Father. Romans 3 says it this way, that we who are believers are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. The word propitiation means a satisfaction of wrath, sacrifice. That's what Christ was on the cross. Christ's death satisfied God's wrath at the sins of his elect. It was substitutionary. It was, he was in our place as believers. Our sin because it's against an infinitely holy God is worthy of infinite wrath. That's why we face eternal hell. Just one sin, just Adam's one sin condemned us all to that eternity in hell. But he kept sinning, and we're born sinners, and we sin and keep sinning. And it's just eternal wrath upon eternal wrath upon eternal wrath stored up for us. And Christ, as that substitute, being God as well as man, could take that infinite amount of wrath and pay it all in that finite time on the cross. That's what what Romans 3 is saying happened while he was on the cross. That's what he said happened when he said, it is finished. It's paid in full. I've satisfied it. And as he gave himself up to the Father, the Father was satisfied. Without the substitutionary atoning work of Christ, none would be saved. This is an absolutely essential doctrine. When Donna and I, our first year of marriage, I had just graduated Stetson, and she was finishing her degree. So before seminary, get some, some ministry experience, ended up at a church in Tampa doing youth work. And I was young and stupid, and didn't ask any questions. I thought this pastor's gonna be a great mentor to me. And thank God and God's kind providence, he left that church before I started. Because speaking with the music minister, once I was there, he told me how in an ordination council, that pastor made the statement that he did not believe in the sacrificial atonement of Christ, which means that pastor who had been serving in that church as the preaching pastor for eight years was a lost man. You cannot be saved if you don't believe in the sacrificial atonement of Jesus Christ. It's absolutely essential to the faith. All all religions, pretty much, uh, in uh, biblical theology, Dr. MacArthur and Dr. Mayhew bring out the point that they all have a, a system of atonement, but it's always the sinner making some kind of atonement for himself or herself. Christianity is unique in that God makes the atonement for us as a gift, in our place, as our substitute. This this is the heart of the offense of the cross, of the gospel. It's because for us to receive it, we have to admit, I can't make my way to God. I can't be good enough. I can't make up enough for my sins. I can't make my own way. We have to admit, I'm 100% completely dependent on the mercy and grace of God because I'm a sinner who deserves eternal wrath. that, That offends our flesh. That offends our sin. And if we've never seen that offense, we're not saved. God brings us through that offense. And then once he brings us through it and we've come to Christ... It totally transforms, and the cross becomes not an offense, but a beautiful, cherished reality that we're so eternally grateful for, beyond measure, that he would do that and we savor it and we meditate on it, or we should, we should never get over it, spend time in the scriptures about it. That's what Isaac Watts did, my favorite hymn, "When I surveyed the wondrous cross, he surveyed the cross. And it poured out in this hymn of praising Christ for what he had done. And he concludes the last stanza, "Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Makes me think of another great hymn from a similar time period, Charles Wesley's And Can It Be, That I Should Gain an Interest in the Savior's Blood, Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And we see it in in modern songs. One of my favorite modern songs was Behold the Lamb, which is the same idea. It's, It's looking, meditating on, thinking on what Christ has done in the atonement for us and worshiping and praising him for it. And as we ponder it, there's many aspects to it. Uh, Lloyd-Jones uses the illustration of a a huge mountain, and to get to know that mountain, you have to go on all the different sides to get closer and further away and, and try to gain perspective on it. And with the atonement of Christ, it includes many things. I can just mention several. Substitution we've spoken of. The atonement includes Christ was our substitute. And and in two ways. One, One we haven't mentioned. Christ substitutes for his elect in perfect obedience. The sinless life of Christ is an essential part of this substitution. Because God demands a perfect life. And we've all sinned. So we don't have it. But when we come to faith in Christ, he gives us his. And then he substitutes in paying the penalty owed for our sin. On the cross, this this sacrificial atonement that we're speaking of. It includes propitiation, the satisfaction of wrath we just talked about. It includes imputation. So our sin is imputed to Christ. And his righteousness and his satisfaction of wrath is imputed to us. Wow. That's an unbelievably great exchange for us. That we get Righteousness and wrath satisfied, he took our sin. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. This atonement includes reconciliation. Where he brings peace between God and us, the believers. There's no more enmity, no more separation. We're now in a relationship with him as his child because of Christ. It includes redemption. We're slaves to our sin. We start life as slaves of sin. Christ's blood paid the ransom to set us free. So when we're in Christ, we're now able not to sin. And one day, we won't be able to sin. Sin will be completely removed from us in glory. And it includes victory, conquest, Christ in his atoning work on the cross and his resurrection defeated sin, defeated death, defeated Satan, victory. And it's ours in Christ. If you've never been born again, look to Jesus. He's the only way to be right with God, to have sin forgiven, to be made his, to have eternal life. Run to Christ. Because he loved you and gave himself up for us. Finally, our practice. What does it look like for us to love like Christ? We love Christ by imitating Christ's love and the power of his provision in every area of life. Including forgiveness. So, Verse 2 again of Ephesians 5. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Do it. Practice it. We couldn't end earlier because there's no way for us to do it because of our problem of sin. And the only way we can is because of God's provision in Christ's atoning work. But if we're his, if in his grace we've repented and trusted Christ, we've received the benefits of that saving work, he's working on us, still sanctifying us, now we can. Now we can walk in love this way. Now we can imitate Christ. So it starts there. It's got to be in the power of his provision. And in that provision of the cross, he shows us ourselves, that we're sinners, completely dependent on him. It shows us others are the same as us. They're not worse than us. We're no better than than others. We're all sinners. And that's an important perspective to keep and to maintain to love one another the way Christ loves us. C.S. Lewis has a couple quotes I think are helpful here. He writes, Hate the sin but not the sinner. For a long time, I used to think this is a silly straw-splitting distinction. How could you hate what a man did and not hate the man? But years later, it occurred to me that there was one man to whom I had been doing this all my life, namely myself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Elsewhere, Lewis writes, There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we're to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be of that kind, and it is in fact the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. Treat one another in light of eternity. And pray, even with you as an instrument in their life, they may be a splendor and not a horror. Even as you desire to be. and, And are if you're in Christ. Walk in love. And our practice of loving like Christ involves imitation. We're to mimic Christ. The word in verse 1 about imitating God, and then he goes on parallel to explain it by walking in love, is the word we get mimic from. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us. Notice we're beloved children. As beloved children, we're to mimic, we're to imitate. We don't imitate to earn a place with God and become His child, because we are his child by his grace and through the atoning work of Christ, we should mimic. Children love to mimic their parents. As many of you know, my father's one we will honor tomorrow Memorial Day. I was very young when he was killed, shot down and killed in Vietnam. But I've always cherished any of the ways I'm like him. Whether, Whether it's looks or mannerisms, Um, Most importantly, he trusted Christ. I I mimic my mom as well. Think back, she loved reading. She loved books and reading, and I love books and reading. She loves writing, and I love writing. Now, I can't come close to her writing. My, My mom's an amazing writer. And my mom, something else I've realized I mimic, she loved Loves to sit around when the family's all together, and just listen and watch. I mean, she'd participate some too, but she really liked just listening and watching. And now I'm getting to do that, including with my grandkids. And you knew those of you who know knew I'd have to work it in somehow. But Friday, our fifth grandchild was born: <laughs> Hazen, Russell, Carr, Matthew, and Alexis. Yes, praise the Lord. And and Don and I, now Nana and Papa, had the privilege of watching his older brother Haddon while they were at the hospital. And Haddon happens to be a master mimic, just in every way. Because God, God makes children mimics. They love to mimic, and especially their parents. And God wants us, as his spiritual adopted children, to mimic him. And specifically by walking in love as Christ Loved us. These two verses I mentioned earlier end a paragraph that's part of a letter. This letter of Ephesians, the, the first rough half, roughly half of it, chapters one through three, is all about who we are in Christ, the doctrine of that. And then chapters four through six are living out that who we are in Christ, applying it in our, in our lives. Verse one of chapter four starts with walk worthy of the calling. Now it's giving another specific, walk in love as Christ loved us. And love, chapter 4, verse 2, bearing with one another in love. 415, speaking the truth in love. 416, the, the body of Christ building itself up in love. And then we come to this paragraph. And it begins with a call for us to imitate God by not imitating unbelievers. And the first several verses kind of walk through how don't go the way of the world. If we're walking in love, we forsake all of that. All that past life of ours, put off the old self. Don't don't follow those those old ways. <clears throat> in And as part of that, it speaks of telling the truth, speaking the truth in, in, in love in chapter four and then, and then um, later in chapter 4 I'm so sorry, laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor for we are members one of another. Uh, for time's sake, I'm not going to hit all the, the specifics, but go back through that whole paragraph and look at some of the specifics of how do we live out this love. How do we love like Christ? But this one, we, we are to love to tell the truth. Walking in love tells the truth and tells it in love. Even when those we're telling the truth to don't like what we're saying and will accuse us of being unloving, whether it's LBGTQ plus issues that are so hot today and being pushed on us so ferociously, ferociously at us, We have to stick with the truth of God's word and in love and out of love and in loving manner, but firmly, clearly speak the truth. That is the loving thing to do. Similarly, to tell people Christ is that only way. It's only through Christ. It's only based on his atonement that we can be right with God. It is exclusive in that sense. It's open to anyone who will repent and believe, the Bible says. But it's only through Christ. And in horrific acts of evil like the shooting this past week, we still need to speak the truth. There are lots of details, lots of details we do need to look at and have our arguments about, and feel free to come talk to me and ask my opinion. But the point here is there's a primary point that's true from Scripture that's beyond argument for the Christian. And that is the victim's families, what they need right now is Jesus Christ. They need Christ. He's the only one in whom they'll find comfort and peace and strength. They need Jesus. And on the issue of how do we not have this happen again, our society needs Christ. Are there other things to talk about? Absolutely. We have a school here. Are we going to talk about some of those things? Absolutely. But the bottom line is our society needs Jesus Christ because the reason that happened is sin. That we talked about earlier. Our problem is sin. Sin, sin, sin. We're evil people in our hearts because of Adam's sin and we sin ourselves. That's what causes these evil, awful things. And the only answer to that is salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ and his atonement. Now from there, do other things flow? Absolutely. But that's the bottom line. Need. And we need to tell that truth if we're loving like Christ loves us. There's so many, so many things here. We should put aside uh, vices that are listed here in these, in these verses um, Bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and, and and all those those things listed, and then verse thirty-two. I just needed, for time's sake, let me jump forward. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So, the last specific he mentions before he sums it up with. Imitating God by walking in love as Christ loved us is forgiveness. And so I'll end with that specific. If forgiveness is a real test of where we're at with the Lord. And are we loving as he loves? He loves us that even while we were yet sinners, he died for us to forgive us. We didn't deserve it. We didn't on our own come to him for it. The father had to draw us, he tells us in John's gospel. We were rebels, sinners. We hated him. We hated God. But he died for us. He forgave us. He drew us. He made us his. If we're going to love like Christ loved us, we have to forgive. In fact, the prayer Jesus taught us to pray... Or forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against it. He assumes that. He didn't say it would be easy. But if we're, and we can't lightly say, yeah, I forgive, but I don't forget. Well, we don't necessarily have to forget. But we have to forgive. And if we really forgive, it transforms the relationship back to where it should be. Doesn't mean, now listen, separate from that, it could be trust. There'll be things you, because forgiveness is forgiving something that's a real debt. If it's not a real debt, it's not forgiveness. It's just, yeah, you're excused or, yeah, I pardon that. There's, you know, it's not. But if it's a sin against us, it's a real debt owed to us. And so it's really forgiveness to forgive it. And so in some of those cases, we may forgive and we can't trust the person yet. Maybe never. But our heart should be clear. Maybe there's precautions because of the trust issue. But our heart should be clear. We should be able to relate to them rightly. Not avoid. If you find yourself avoiding somebody, you haven't forgiven them. I'm sorry, you have not forgiven them. If, if, you're, if there's something still there, you know deep down, get it worked out. Matthew 5, Matthew 18, whether we know they have something against us, we should initiate. Let's try to get this right. Whatever it is, I may not even know what it is, but let's get this right. We know something, some sin in their life, initiate to get it right. Either way, we should initiate and come into it with a forgiving heart like Jesus has towards us and forgive even before they ask. Be forgiving. The whole transaction of forgiveness can't finish until they ask, but your part can be, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone, including being forgiving of them. Ask God to help you with that. Just a few weeks ago, the Academy Theater presented The Hiding Place and dramatized so well Corey ten Boom facing one of the guards from the concentration camp. After, you know, afterwards, a few years later, him saying he'd come to Christ. God had forgiven him. He wanted her to forgive him, too. I don't know if you remember that, but it, if, if in the grace of God in Christ, she could forgive her tormentor in the concentration camp where her sister died, we can forgive our stuff much greater than that if jesus christ can forgive the eternal eternally offensive sin of ours we can forgive each other love like christ love that walk in love just as christ loved us and gave himself up for us let's pray Father, thank you, Lord, for your amazing grace, mercy, love, fill us with wonder of it, appreciation, gratitude. And Lord, let us live it. Let us imitate our Savior with one another and with this world around us. Bless Pastor Scott and Gina right now as they're living out the love of Christ to the world. Let us do so with our coworkers and our neighbors our extended family members, just those we meet as we go. Let us do so with each other. To love without limits here at Riverbend. Lord, you've blessed us. We've seen so much of your love through so many here. But Lord, as Pastor Scott challenges us in January, let us keep examining we're not home yet. We're not perfect. And we want to get closer and closer until one day you come back for us and make it all perfect. But Lord, grow us to love as Christ with one another. And Father, we, we ask these things in His name. Amen.